Let's give our attention to the word of God now as we turn to another psalm, Psalm 16. We're going to study over the next two weeks Psalm 16, a wonderful psalm, a messianic psalm, a psalm of David. We'll read the whole psalm together, although we plan only to consider the first seven verses of this psalm this morning, and Lord willing, next Lord's Day afternoon, a shorter study on the last part of that psalm, which especially for verse 10, as we read it, you'll see it. It's a psalm about Christ, and thus it's called the Messianic Psalm. Psalm 16. Read with me the word of God. The psalmist cries out, as he often does in the psalms, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. They drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 16, a psalm of David. And uh, I kind of just decided to do a psalm, uh, Psalm 1, a while back. And it's still the summer. And I think I may just continue in some psalms until the end of the summer. And uh, Psalm 16 this morning, I thought it good to talk a little bit about the Psalms. The fact that, as you should know, and you could flip through your Bible and look very quickly, there are 150 Psalms in the Bible, and 75 of those are attributed to David. And, and 73 of those actually say a Psalm of David. That's why we know. We don't have to guess. And then Psalm 2 and Psalm 95 are attributed to David in Acts chapter 4 and verse 25 and in Hebrews 4 and verse 7. So we know those two also of David, 75 psalms. Twelve psalms are written by Asaph and his family. Eleven psalms are written by Korah and the sons of Korah. Two by Solomon, 72 and 127. Psalm 90 by Moses. Psalm 89 by Ethan the Ezraite. And the remaining 48 psalms? Anonymous. We don't know who wrote those. But here's the important thing. As Second Peter, First Peter, Second Peter 1.21 tells us, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So it does not matter who wrote the psalm. It was just a man being carried by the Holy Spirit. But the psalms 
is a wonderful collection of hymns, and we have a Psalter, which perhaps we should use more often, and it was written for our instruction, and written, the Psalms are written, to assist us in our worship, in praising God. And we love the Psalms because they describe the personal and the national relationship of the people of God with his creator. And because so many are prophetic, they give us much of gospel grace. Yes, right in the Psalms are filled with gospel grace. And many are messianic in nature, telling us, in other words, about the coming Messiah of God, as this one does. And the psalmists who wrote didn't understand those things. They believed God, but they couldn't possibly understand. And as we read the psalm, we'll see one or two verses and say, this is not David. This is not David at all. And so this wonderful collection of hymns written for our instruction. And Psalm 16 is a messianic psalm, as I told you and as you possibly noted. But does this mean that it does not apply to David? Does this mean we cannot apply this psalm to ourselves? Well, no, it is a psalm of David. And David wrote of his personal experience, but he wrote, as in this case, as a prophet. And the New Testament points us this out to us. And though it describes his personal experiences and his confession of God, as we see, and even though messianic, the application is legitimately to David and to us as hearers of God's word today, written for our instruction. Nevertheless, Messianic Psalms speak primarily of the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll see particularly next week as we view this psalm as a Messianic Psalm in, in those particular portions, particularly verse 9, that truly cannot mean any other man, but can only mean the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet it is instruction to us as Christ is revealed in the pages of the Old Testament. What a wonderful thing in the Psalms. Is it not the mystery of Christ unfolding thousands of years before Christ even came? What we love about the Psalms, of course, this one included, that they describe to us the fears and the joys, the sorrows and the anxieties of the godly man who trusts in God. Because we all have the emotions that David had. We all had the fears, perhaps not men chasing us with, with spears wanting to kill us as David did, but we all have these anxieties in our lives and they describe the man with these fears, anxieties, and threats upon his life, and depression, and times of joy, they describe the man of God. And they're filled with comfort and hope for the path of life of the godly, of the man who trusts in God amid his trials, and his temptations, his doubts, his infirmities. And they lead us to constant praise. And that is why when I'm sure you do the same thing. Watch I read today. If you're not busy reading a book of the Bible, and you're a five-minute Psalms. We open the Psalms. And what encouragement for us in times of whatever station of life we are in. And even in our sins, what a beautiful book to go to, to open. Where we are taught 
about repentance, where we are taught about forgiveness through the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah spoken of even in this psalm. And they teach us of God's immutable attributes, his unchanging nature, and they appeal to us to worship God together. Now in our study of Psalm 1, we noted that Psalm 1 is a pattern, really, a starting place of all the Psalms, and they describe the state of the godly, the godly man who trusts in God. That's why we love the Psalms so much, for they bring to us comfort and strength in every stage of our lives, even when we fall into sin. We go to Psalm 51, and we see David's heartfelt repentance, his cry to God for mercy. And in all David's cries to God and the other psalmists, not once, not once does the Lord turn his back on his people, but he, he reveals his graciousness and his forgiveness and his love for his people. And above all, as we'll see in this psalm, they reveal the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now Psalm 1, that's Psalm 16, if you look at it, it's called a miktam, a miktam of David. That's a Hebrew word. And guess what? Nobody knows what it means. And it probably means a collection of some psalms. We've got Psalm 16 and then 56 through 60. So those six psalms are miktams. Who knows what it means? Maybe an early collection of David's psalms, but some have translated this miktam as a golden psalm, a very precious one, one to be valued more than by us more than gold because it speaks so clearly to us of Christ and his resurrection hundreds of years before he came, who is the true hidden treasure in the whole field of the Old Testament. And Spurgeon used to talk about the golden thread of the gospel running throughout the Old Testament. Well, Psalm 16 then is our text for the next two weeks. And as so many Psalms do, they describe the personal experience of the blessed man who trusts in God. And this is a very precious Psalm. And it, it differs from many of David's Psalms in this thing, that it's not a desperate cry for help. Some Psalms, David is like, my enemies are round about me. They want his blood. Lord, I'm low. I'm in the depths of Sheol. And there's desperation and there's an urgency and a cry to God. Although this one starts for a cry to God for preservation and refuge, as, Psalm, as the first verse opened. But this Psalm breathed a strong faith in God and great confidence in him. There's a quietness and a peace about this psalm as David describes his experience in the Lord and how he's put his faith in God and all the beautiful words that we've read in this psalm. And David is one who speaks as one totally assured and at peace in committing himself to the one true God. And some psalms we sense an urgency. Lord, save me. I cry to you. Blooded, bloodthirsty men, seek my life. He says, I cry to you, my God, for refuge and, and for deliverance. But his trust is in God and there's a peace. And this shouldn't surprise us in this psalm. Why? 
because it's a messianic psalm. Yes, because it was David's real experience at times, and this was one of their times. But it speaks to gospel grace, and it speaks to the Lord Jesus Christ who trusted in God, not desperately, because his hope and his faith, God was his rock and his salvation while the Son of Man here on earth. So it's no surprise because the Holy Spirit uh, speaks far more than David's experience but of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we'll see more fully next week. Well, let's get to the psalm then. We have five brief points today. Uh, one or two are not so brief. We'll keep an eye on the time, but we have next week uh, with some lessons and applications as we move through each point. So look out for those. They're not going to come tightly wrapped at the end for you. We're going to apply these five points that we have straight from our text today. Number one, they all start with this psalm. So firstly, this psalm is a cry to God. This psalm is a cry to God. Verse 1, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. It's a cry and it's a statement. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. The psalmist David here calls to God for protection with a cheerful, believing confidence. I cry to you, preserve me, O oh God, for in you I take refuge. It's not a helpless cry that may or may not come, a desperate plea that may or may not be answered, but a cry of confidence, as we know from David's experience. He has committed himself to the Lord for refuge with full confidence in God, who has delivered him from his enemies so many times from peril, and even from his own sins. So when David says, cry to you, O God, for you I take refuge, he takes refuge in God even for his sin. We see David calling upon God from the depths in some psalms, even the depths of Seol, Sheol, as he faced death many times, death from his enemies and calamities, because of his sin, and David was no perfect man. In fact, blood never departed from his house because of his adultery and his murder. But the Lord, his rock, has always given him salvation and shelter. And David is calm, and David proclaims, and David cries, but there is a confidence in them. It's like Psalm 71, where the same psalmist cries to God, because his strength is spent. You who made me see many calamities and troubles will revive me again. From the depths of the earth, you will bring me up again. This is David's experience, and now he seems settled in that. Believers, cry to God to preserve you. He is your refuge. Have that. You don't need that panic. You don't need that panic. But you can rest in his love. Those who by faith commit themselves to divine care, which is exactly what David is doing, and submit themselves to divine guidance in obedience to the law of God and the commands of Christ, 
have reason for confident hope that God will be their shelter and protection. No matter what you are in life, no matter what station in life, no matter how much disaster seems to loom upon you, God will be your shelter. And this has been David's lifelong experience, not because he was a good man, not because he deserved any favor from God, but quite the opposite. And despite his sin and disobedience, and yet those who hope in God and who trust in him will find him to be a very present help in trouble. And you know the psalm David wrote too, Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth give way. The worst possible thing can happen. And for California, maybe it's the worst earthquake ever to come. And the psalmist tells us, God is your refuge and strength. When the worst earthquake ever hits California, you need not fear. Though the earth gives way, Though the mountains move into the heart of the sea, though the waters roar and foam with the mountains tremble at its swelling. And is this psalm not already clearly applicable to Christ, who prayed calmly with trust in God? Father, save me from this hour. And he trusted in God who saved his soul from death. And perhaps as a visitor today, you say to me, well, you know, I'm not that desperate. I'm strong. I'm financially, I'm good. I've got a nice family. I, I try and obey the law. I'm confident. I do not have much sin. I mean, read the papers, that's sin. Drugs and rape and murder and theft, that's not me. I can stand before God today. You may say as a visitor, I can justify my life. Yeah, it's not perfect, but I'll be okay. God will not save you. God will not save you. He will not be your refuge. He will not deliver you. It is the sick that Jesus came to save, the weak and the helpless, those imprisoned in their own sin, those in the death of Sheol, without God and without hope, those who know I'm terrified of the end because of my sin, my whole life has offended a holy God, those who remember that they are dust and they cannot put any confidence in the flesh, those who acknowledge their sin and flee to God in Christ, believing with this desperate cry, preserve me, O God. For in you I take refuge. This psalm is a cry to God. You observe in the second place. This psalm is a confession to God. This psalm is a confession to God. And this is closely connected to the cry to God. As is his confession of God follows. The psalmist confesses with his mouth and that he solemnly dedicates himself to God, who is his God. And he claims God as his God. And he confesses that. Look at verse 2. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good. I have no good apart from you. You are my Lord. 
the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ, there on the cross, bearing the sins of all his people. In the darkest night and hour, and the Father turns his face away from him. And yet his cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And God does not forsake him, but saves. And Jesus Christ on the cross declares, God is my salvation. And as God, the eternal Son, he's not subservient to the Father in his person, except in his redeeming work when God when he did the work that God gave him to do. And so even as the Son of Man, Christ cries, you are my salvation. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, as we'll see next week. Perfectly obedient to all the work and the will of the Father for him. And brothers and sisters, to declare God as your God, God as your Lord, this is the mark of a righteous man. He declares and confesses God as his Lord and Christ as his Savior, who is God, the eternal Son. And was this not the preaching of the early apostles? Romans 10, 19. Because if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The confession to confess God as your Lord. And that's what you do when you are baptized and you go in obedience through the waters of baptism. Christian, there's a great lesson in the example of David and his greatest son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Acknowledge God as your Lord. Confess his name. Subject yourself to him and his precious word and stay yourself upon him don't just talk but confess God as your God and stay yourself upon him so that whatever question or trouble or difficulty or quandary that you're facing in this life you may say you are my Lord the Lord he is my God and confess his name as we read in 2 Samuel 22 and Psalm 18 verse 2, the exact same passage. It declares aloud, confess the Lord as your God, your rock, your salvation. Listen to it. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. Oh, brothers and sisters, we are in Christ. We belong to him with heart and soul and voice, covenant with him. Lean on that covenant in his blood. He has promised to those who believe. And then, brothers and sisters, remind yourself that you have confessed God is your God. When you sin and when an evil thought molests you, when an unkind word is on your tongue, confess the Lord. Remind yourself, no, no, stop. God, he is my God. He is my Lord. He is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer. He is my refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation. Confess him as Lord. And when you are brought low and when you sin, call upon him. When you are weak and when you are strong, say it again. Believe it. The Lord, he is my Lord. 
He is my rock. He is my salvation. Believe it and live it in your life. The psalmist is completely resigned in his God. And he confesses God to be his God. Perfectly only in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who came not to bring his own words, but the words given by the Father. Not to do his own works, but the works that the Father gave him to do. The perfect example of him who humbled himself, very God. You are my Lord. You are my God. You are my salvation. Worship him and in everything. Let your eye always be toward him. That is where David was in his life. Confess God as your Lord always. In every and each and every circumstance, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Thirdly, in following this cry of confession, we're going to spend a little more time in, in this point. Thirdly, this psalm declares a love for the God's people. This psalm declares a love for God's people. And this is a verse that really spoke to my own heart and how we view the saints in the land and the fact we talk about saints we think of the roman catholic church and saint the saint we're not talking about that we talk about the godly man who trusts in god the godly man who is called to god and whom god is his rock his salvation his fortress his deliverer the one who declares god is my god he is the man the psalm says who declares a love for god's people look at verse three as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones. Another version says majestic ones. They are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. I read this and I'm kind of, what? God is my delight. God is the one I serve. God is the one I love. And yet the psalmist, the Lord Jesus Christ, says, saints in the land they are the majestic ones they are the excellent ones in whom is my delight and when we align ourselves with God and cry to him and confess his name we align ourselves with all of God's people all of them everyone sitting here who's confessed the name of Christ when we become God's children, by adoption, we come into a new family. A family far more important than your earthly family. And we don't like to hear that often. Yes, far more important. And we are to love that family. And we are constrained by the love of Christ to love that family. And Christ in this messianic psalm says, as for the saints in the land, those for whom I died, they are the majestic ones. They are the majestic ones. Do you see what value God puts upon his people? Do you see what value Christ, the Messiah, puts upon his people? Christ loves every one of his children. He holds them fast to eternity. And we love our brothers and sisters in the Lord because he loves us. And brothers and sisters, 
if we have difficulty loving one another, something is terribly wrong. Then something is terribly wrong. John declares by the Holy Spirit, we cannot and we are not children of God. If we cannot love our brother, we are counterfeit. And God says, as for the saints of the land, they the majestic ones. I really don't like that person. I find it hard to love that person. Something is desperately wrong. 1 John 2, 9. Whoever says he is in the light hates his brother. Not the wicked. Who hates his brother abides is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother is in the light and there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and he walks in darkness and he doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And that's not the only place. First John 4 verse 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another because love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. The psalmist says, David says, as for the saints of the land, they're the majestic ones, they're the excellent ones, they're the ones whom I love. And more importantly, God says, and Christ says, my sheep, I lay down my life for them. I love them. They are the majestic ones. They will be the crowns and the jewels on my crown one day when I perfectly sanctify them. They are the majestic ones. Note that the psalm, the psalmist encourages goodness not to God, but to the saints. God is majestic, yes, but he says they are the majestic ones. My light's in them. I serve them, I must serve them, and do good to them. I cannot do good to God. Can you do good to God? You can obey God. God cannot benefit from me. Did you know that? You cannot enrich God in any way. You cannot make him better. You cannot benefit, you cannot add anything to his infinite perfections and blessedness. But we can benefit the saints and we can do good to them and in so doing we serve God. That's what the scripture teaches. And that is proof that we are his disciples. That is proof that we love him. And David says, you're my God, you're my rock. I confess your name. Oh, I love your saints. And I'm going to shower my goodness. I'm going to serve them. And that's the proof that they are the excellent ones. That's the proof that I truly am in God. This is the teaching of Christ. Is it not? New commandment I give to you that you love one another. You are also to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. In Matthew 5 and verse 16, in the same way, let your light so shine before God, no, before men. Let your light so shine before men. Be salt and light to men. Serve men. Love men. 
so that they may see your good works, glorify your Father in heaven. You want to serve God, serve your brother. You want to love God, love your brother. They are the excellent ones. The important lessons here. Uh, number one, those who've confessed the Lord as their God must, like him, be good and do good. We cannot expect happiness without goodness. This is the blessedness of the man that we've seen in Psalm 1. What is the blessedness of the man 1? He doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. He goes to the righteous. He does not stand in the way of sinners. He stands and converses with the excellent ones. He does not sit in the ski seat of the scoffer. He's only comfortable with his family that he loves the people of God because they are loved by God. They are the majestic and the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. And I serve God and I love God by loving them. Number two, the second lesson. Whatever good there is in us or is done by us, we must humbly acknowledge that it doesn't benefit God. Whatever good there is in us, done by us or done to others, we must humbly acknowledge that it does not benefit God. The wisest and the best and the most useful men in the world cannot be profitable to God. Job chapter 22 and verse 2. Can a man be profitable to God? Surely he who is wise is profitable to himself. And Job chapter 35 and verse 7. If you are righteous, what do you give him? Or what do you receive from his hand? And the point is that God is infinitely above us. And whatever we do, good we do, is all from him, so that we are indebted to him, not he indebted to us. So when we do good to a brother and love a brother, we cannot say, Lord, you owe me for this one. You know how hard it is to love them. We cannot enrich God. Whatever good we do is from him. For all we do is those good works which we preferred, prepared beforehand that we should do. And David owns it. David owns this. Listen to First Chronicles 29, 14. But who am I? And what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly for all things come from you and have been given to you? Third lesson. Third lesson, yeah. If God be ours, if we confess him, we must, for his sake, extend our goodness to those that are his. That's what we've been saying to the saints on the earth. What is done to and for God's people, he is pleased to take as done to himself, making them his receivers. And Jesus' teaching of the cup of cold water in his name illustrates this point, doesn't it? Let me read those verses to you in Matthew 25. Then the righteous, those when he separated the sheep and the goats, the goats on the left, and the righteous is to enter into the kingdom prepared for you. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? 
or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you? When did we see you sick and in prison or visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it unto me. Do it to the excellent ones. Do it to God's people. Love God's people and serve them. That is how we serve God. Four things I want to say very quickly under this point. Number one, Christians are the saints on the earth. If we are not saints on earth, we will never be saints in heaven. Christians are the saints on the earth. And if we are not saints on earth, we will not be saints in heaven. Those that are renewed by the grace of God and devoted to the glory of God are saints on this earth. They are the excellent ones. The second thing we must note, the saints on the earth are the excellent ones. Great, mighty, the majestic ones. And do you consider yourself in this category? I find it hard to consider myself as a majestic one. But this is how God views us, and this is how we must view the saints. And then we look and we see, but some, some on this earth must do well. We live in 21st century America, and the Lord blesses us in so many ways. We have our infirmities, we have our temptations, but the Lord is our God. He is our salvation. We proclaim his name. But when we look, some are infirm, and some are poor, and some are needy, and those needed need goodness to be extended to them, to the excellent ones in whom is my delight. And God makes us excellent by the grace that he gives us. There is no boasting here. God makes us the excellent ones by the grace that he has given us. The saints are precious in his sight. The saints are honorable. They are his jewels. They are his peculiar treasure. This is how God views the saints. I think we need to adjust our thinking towards God's people. And when one is infirm and sick and in trouble, because they are the excellent ones, you must come to them and do good to them and serve them and show them love. And that is how you serve God and love God. Therefore, God can say, precious in the sight of the Lord are the death of his saints. Precious, precious. The Lord wants me in glory. He's preparing me now for glory. And Christ is going to perfect me and complete the work that he has done. And I'm the excellent one because of Christ. Because of Christ. And so I must view my brothers and sisters as the handiwork of Christ and of God, the excellent one in whom is all my delight. Thirdly, all that have taken the Lord for their God delight in the saints as the excellent ones. Because they bear his image and because he loves them. And David, though a king, was a companion of all that feared God. Listen to Psalm 119, verse 63. I am a companion, this is the king speaking, of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. Even the meanest was a sign that his delight was in them. 
in the last lesson here, the fourth one, it is not enough for us to just delight in the saints. It's not enough. As it is not enough for us to say that we love God if we don't obey his commandments. And it's not enough to say, I delight in the saints. I love the saints. That's not enough. But we must, where we have opportunity, extend our goodness to them. We must be ready to show kindness that they need and distribute to their necessities and abound in a labor of love for them. Is this not a picture of Christ's love and care for us? Is this not a messianic song where Jesus Christ doesn't say, I love you. He says, I lay down my life for you. Where Jesus Christ says, be holy. No, he makes us holy and he will perfect us. That is true love. All that Christ has done is for the good of the saints. What Christ has done for us has not enriched God. But what Christ has done on earth as the Son of Man is for the good of the saints. And we must follow Christ in this. Christ even says in John 17, 19, For their sake I consecrate myself, that they may also be sanctified in the truth. Christ delights even in the saints on earth, despite our weaknesses and infirmities, which is a good reason why we should. The psalm declares a love for the people of God. Main point number four. Number four. I'm keeping an eye on the time. Fourthly, this psalm expresses careful worship to God. This psalm expresses careful worship to God. You remember Psalm 1, David expressed what the blessed man is by showing what he does not do, where he does not go, where he do, who he does not associate with. And here he outlines a true worship of God by showing what will become of those who worship false gods and who follow idols and other gods. And that the righteous man who trusts in God will distance himself from false worship. He will have nothing to do with him. Why? Because the godly man, because the man who trusts in God expresses careful worship of God. He will not do these things. He will not offer sacrifices. He will not offer unholy fire as in the Old Testament before God. He has acknowledged the only true God, confessed his name. He has loved his people. This is true worship. But here he shows the folly and the end of those who go after idols. Look at verse 4. The sorrows of those who run after other gods shall multiply. They drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names upon my lips. Here's the godly man who is careful in his worship of God. He rejects the false worship of false God. He rejects interaction with those who worship and worship false gods. The righteous are careful to worship God alone. The righteous are careful to worship God in the way that God requires us to worship him. 
And remember, the moral and the spirit, particularly the ceremonial law in the Old Testament, told the Israelites exactly how they were to worship God before they come, come into his presence and washing and ceremonies and whatever offerings had to be made. It had to be exactly the way God prescribed it. So we're in the New Testament, that's okay. Well, in the New Testament, worship is through the blood of Christ alone in the New Covenant. And again, according to the exact pattern of worship as established by the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who worship the Father must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And worship is no longer in a temple. We have a beautiful sanctuary. This is not worship in the temple or on a mountain, but worship is right here. Yes, happens to be a house right here where the Lord's people meet. And the apostles' teaching furthermore directs us to what we as Reformed Baptists call the regulative principle of worship. In other words, you cannot introduce what elements you want into the worship of God unless God has changed, but God is immutable. So, no, we can't have dance as a form of worship or running around or hugging or whatever people do today, snakes. We cannot introduce... That is false worship, and we must not associate ourselves with those in false worship. Rather, the New Testament pattern established by the apostles and the means of grace to the church. What are they? Worship in spirit and in truth is where the Lord's people meet to worship and fellowship in the reading of Scripture and in the preaching of Scripture and in the prayers and the singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, and in, the and in the instituted ordinances of the Lord Jesus Christ, believers' baptism, and the Lord's Supper. This is the only legitimate worship of God. And to reject this, or to add our own elements to this pattern, is false worship. And to turn ourselves away, or absent ourselves from this gathering, of the true worship of God means we are not and cannot be worshiping God in spirit and in truth. And many people say, you know, I'd rather not go to church. I love God. I have a relationship with Him. You know, when I play golf on a Sunday, God talks to me, God. False gods. That's not God. God is here with His people. The prayers, the reading of Scripture, the preached word, baptism and the Lord's Supper. That is worship that is in spirit and in truth. And here's two lessons or two warnings. And we'll close with this. We'll pick up the fifth point next time together with the last part of the psalm. There's two lessons here for those who chose after false gods or warnings from our text. Their sorrows will be multiplied. Those who chase after false gods, those who pour out blood, those who drink the blood for... Whatever it is you want to introduce into worship, which is not the worship of God, this is what's going to happen. Their sorrows will be multiplied. Both the judgments they bring upon themselves from the true God whom they forsake, and by the disappointment they will meet with the false gods that they embrace. 
because some false gods you have pick up and move them. They don't have arms and legs, they, they can't speak, as, as Isaiah describes. Any idols of your heart will bring us great grief. We don't, nobody worships idols, well, some people do, but they are idols of the heart. And they are things that creep into our lives that we've got to say, whoa, I'm obsessed with this. I, I love this, but I'm supposed to love God supremely. Any idols of our heart will bring us great grief. Any distraction from the worship of God to other things will harm our souls. Those who find God too little. What I get in church is not enough. I'm looking for a little bit more. We'll find that hundreds of other idols will never be enough. And believers, let's mark this as a warning for ourselves. The world, the things that are in the world, the love of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. One John tells us, do not love the world or the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And James 4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The psalmist says, I will have, I don't even take their name on my lips. And the second warning is to dissociate ourselves from those who worship falsely. To have fellowship with them is to become part of their works of doctrine. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names upon my lips. Not only because the gods they are offered, they are offered to are a lie, but because the offering themselves are despicable and drinking of blood and whatever it is that are done. And I quote here, at God's altar, because the blood made atonement, the drinking of it was most strictly forbidden, and the drink offerings were of wine. But the devil prescribed to worshippers to drink of the blood of the sacrifices to teach them to be cruel. I have nothing to do with them, says the psalmist. I was not so much as take their names on my lips and with any delight in them or respect to them. We hate idols and idolatry with a perfect hatred. That is what the psalmist is saying. This psalm expresses careful worship of God. So I'm going to stop right there. We over time and we'll pick up the fifth point and continue the others with the, in the same vein, Lord willing, next week. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we bless you for your kindness. How we thank you that we can proclaim this day as we have in our hearts and on our lips in song that the Lord is our Lord. He is our refuge and strength. He is the rock of our salvation. Oh, Father, help us to love the saints in the land. Love, help us to love and to serve one another. And to do so is to serve you and to love you. Oh, Father, we thank you that we can proclaim you as our God because of our Lord Jesus Christ who suffered and died for us and that this psalm will even teach us rose from the dead and his body will not see 
decay. Oh Lord, help us to walk with you. Help us to own you, not only on our lips as our God, but in our lives and in our walk and in our love. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.